Hey gang, before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to jump on here and uh, give you a bit of a disclaimer, sort of like a setup for this show. This is one of those episodes that sort of fell deep into my queue. This was a show I recorded months and months ago, uh, and I'm very excited about this episode. And honestly, to give you full transparency, we were holding out on the release of this show because we had some potential sponsors that wanted to sponsor this ad or sponsor this uh, episode. Um, and some of them signed on, some of them didn't sign on. And I just sort of hit a point where I'm like, dude, we got to put this fucking show up. <laughs> so it is an older episode, um, but you guys are going to love it. Uh, and yes, we get into one of my favorite topics on this show, food barbecue. So strap yourselves in and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. figured it out, when you decided what it was that you want to do when you get older, what it is that you want to do for a job, what it is that you want to be obsessed with that makes you happy for the rest of your life. Where were you when it happened? How old were you when it happened? And did it change? How did it evolve with you? For some folks, they decided that they wanted to do what it is that they're passionate about very young. They had sort of like a laser vision, laser focus on how to get there and what it is that they wanted to do. And we hear about those romantic stories, right? We hear about those cases. But for most of us, many of us are just trying to figure it out. Going through the process of trying to decide what college I go to while you're in elementary school, trying to figure out what after-school sports and programs should I be taking that better suit and set me up for my goals? A lot of folks like me were like, I don't know what I fucking want to do, man. I don't understand enough about life yet. I haven't experienced enough things in life yet. How the hell 
are you expecting me to understand what this is? And then if you are in that situation, like I was, and I can only speak from my experience, stumbling around, trying to figure it out, spending a little time working with these guys, spending time working under cars and being in airplane shops and spending time in music stores, sort of dancing around and trying to find my way. It took me years to figure out where I wanted to head, where I should focus my, my energy. That was when I stumbled across movies and film, and directing. And that's what I thought, what I still think that I want to do to make me happy for the rest of my life. So you decide that your way in is a little weird, right? Coming at it from all sorts of different angles and you, you didn't necessarily follow the quote unquote traditional path to get there, right? Maybe you didn't go to school for this thing that you want to do for the rest of your life. Maybe you didn't get traditional training on this thing that you're incredibly passionate about. And folks that I talk to on the show, people that I talk to in real life, most of them feel this way. What happens when you get in that room? What happens after you spend hours and hours practicing and teaching yourself in your own way and you get yourself into this space with these people that you admire, your peers, the people around you that do stuff? Do you feel like you belong there? There's this crazy thing called the imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome, right? Where you're in this space and you're like, I don't know if I deserve to be here. And what that does is it <laughs> fucking karate chops your ego instantly. Your ego is like cut in half and you're just sort of processing this insecurity. And does this insecurity change the way you interact with these folks? Does this insecurity change your progression as an artist? Imposter syndrome is a real deal. Everybody feels it. I don't care who I've talked to. I've talked to pop stars that find themselves in the space with their idols or find themselves on stage with people that they respect and they go, I don't even deserve to be here. I didn't go get trained. I didn't go to Berkeley. I'm not a Juilliard fucking genius. Why am I here? How do I deserve this? I feel like I lied my way in. I wanted to talk a little bit about that on today's show. And today isn't just about film. Today is about finding your passion and being passionate about life and life experiences. And of course, I've rotated all that around in my second favorite subject, I don't even I don't even want to say it's a second favorite subject. It's as, it's as equal with film for me. Food, eating, cooking, barbecue. All these things, I love these things. You see me post about them. You see me talk about them. Why do I do it? Is it about the recipes? No. Is it about the technical aspects of it? No, completely no. Am I going to teach you how to run a grill at a very specific temperature? Hell no, not going to do any of that stuff, right? For me, it's about the shared experience. It's about learning from the people that I get to hang out with. It's about convincing people to hang out with me. I love that stuff. And with food, it's this barrier breaking down mechanism, right? I barely got that out. It's a barrier breaking down mechanism, which... If you're going to hang out with a couple strangers, maybe you, you barely know this person. Maybe you're trying to get to know this person. 
sitting down and having a meal together, making a meal together, it's the ultimate way to connect with somebody. And if you are lucky enough to get invited to someone's place for food, which I treasure, by the way, absolutely treasure that. If I get invited to someone's house, someone's house that doesn't have cats or dogs in it, because you know me and my allergies, I can never go to those spots. So if someone invites me over for food and I can go, I am so excited. It's like being a 12-year-old with tickets to Disneyland, right? For me, that's so much fun because I get to go and experience their world. I get to go in their home and see how they put their life together and what's their kitchen like. You can really assess a person by how they keep their kitchen and what they have in their kitchen. Are they someone with with just a microwave and a fucking freezer? Are they somebody that spends thousands and thousands of dollars on all these fucking tools and they barely use any of them? Is it someone that has uh, a rolling pin that is inherited from their grandmother? Each and every element in that space is loaded with emotional stories. It's emotionally charged. A kitchen is very much emotionally charged. I love that about it. Watching someone's process. How do you make dough? How do you boil water? Simple things. Things that they were taught from their generation. Things that they were taught from their parents or from their boyfriend or from their girlfriend. I love that stuff. Because then you feel like you get to, just for you know an, an evening, right? Just for a meal. You get to feel like you're a part of their story. You get to feel like you're a part of their family. It's what I love about food more than I love about film. Because I don't think you get that with film. But with food, you do. Making films, yes. But like being a consumer of films, not necessarily. Unfortunately, not necessarily. I'd like to change that. Um, but the, it, uh, the relationship with an audience and a director or a filmmaker is very transactional right now, which I think we should change. We should have a curiosity and an understanding about that artist's life experiences. Who's the crew that they work with? What's that experience like? I know that there's a rule of thumb with a lot of critics where they're like, hey, look, if you're going to watch a movie, I don't care how it was made. I don't care where it comes from. I want to see it clean. I want to see it cold. And I want to assess it based upon that. I don't agree with that necessarily. I get it, right? Because you want to be as emotionally dis uh, distanced from it as possible to try to to, to get the flavors, let's say like if it was a food dish, to just taste the flavors, to see the presentation, you know, you want to judge it for what it is. Why do we fucking do that as, a, as an audience, right? I get it if you're like a stuffy fucking critic and that's your mode, you know, you've created some sort of creed for yourself and you're like, this is the process for me. This is how I decipher who is the best and what is great. Whatever, man. That's very lonely to me. I, I'm not shitting on, on critics. I'm just saying that that mindset, and I get that because I used to have that mindset when I was younger, when I was a kid, and I was just learning about cinema, and I was so excited about it, and I became sort of arrogant about it. Um, why do it? Why the fuck do you do that for? And as an audience, that's not what I want you guys to think. That's not how I want you guys to be involved with it. I, I love the idea that 
you guys are asking how I do things, wanting to understand what the behind the scenes are and wanting to understand what the process is and loving this show and tuning into the show because of all that stuff. I want you to know all those things so that when you watch the feature, when you see the film, you think about all that. Because I'll tell you what, it's it's going to be in there. It's the subtext of the entire fucking movie, man. And no one really talks about that. What's the subtext for the characters and everything? No, 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 no. What do the what do the filmmakers bring into it? Because that's what makes a Sam Raimi movie a Sam Raimi movie. It's not the fact that he's just running through the woods with a fucking camera and he's spinning it around. It's not the fact that he uses the same actors all the time. It's not all those elements. Because when you watch uh, a great example of that is uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead, right? The TV show that he did that came out. His first episode or two episodes were beautifully Sam Raimi, so wonderfully done. And then the other directors that come in are just doing the Sam Raimi thing, essentially looking up his recipe online or he dictates what his recipe is and they follow the steps of that recipe. But what's missing is Sam, his life, all of his experience, all his stuff that that, that he brings to it. And I guess I'm drawing these parallels because that's what I do with food on this show is, is, is try to connect the tissues. Why me being an obsessed filmmaker, why am I also so obsessed with food? Is it just because I like to eat it? Sure, I enjoy to eat it, but it isn't about flavor and it isn't about sus- sustenance for me. It's about this experience. That's what we're going to talk about on today's show. I'm very excited to have our guest on. I have uh, Mr. Brad Prose on the show. He is a recipe developer, a food writer, uh, a culinary photographer, if you will. Uh, he is also the force behind Chilies and Smoke, which is a great recipe blog. He's got Instagram accounts. The guy's really cool. He cooks really great food. He's passionate about great flavors. I appreciate his process. He's one of these folks that isn't just, I hate to say it this way, isn't just looking at someone else's Instagram and going, how do I just make what that cool looking Instagram thing is here? He actually digs deep into the history, the heritage of the food, the reason why it was made. What he's looking for is the same thing that I'm looking for, which is the human connection and understanding of why why it began and understanding ultimately of the problem that was presented to them and how they fixed it, how they had a workaround for it, how they developed something beautiful out of struggle. And I've talked about it before on the show, on the past barbecue shows. If you guys are barbecue fans, barbecue is slave food. That's where it comes from. That's initially where it comes from is slavery. So when you understand that, you understand that these folks are getting the less desirable cuts of meat, that these folks are getting the less desirable animals. And they're trying to figure out a way to make them first and foremost edible. But beyond that, there's an art form that's discovered there. There's a passion that's discovered there. There's a process that's discovered there that creates these culinary masterpieces that are now you go to a restaurant i just went for barbecue the other day tried it out here in california it was fucking 37 dollars for a plate 37 dollars for a fucking plate you know what i mean so i mean you get there's a long way from you know the plantations to that shiny little tray that shows out with the paper and 
three ribs and a thing of brisket on it. You know what I mean? So if you if you go back and you look at the history, you try to find the human interaction with this stuff. And hopefully that's what today's episode is going to do. Brad and I get into it, get deep. We talk about some recipes. We talk about experiences that he has. Um, he's a great photographer. He's a great content creator. Uh, so I'm excited to have you here. Welcome, everybody. Those of you who just showed up, maybe you guys are, are fans of Brad's. And you're coming on board. Welcome to In Love With The Process. My name is Mike Petchy. This is my show. I'm a director. I'm a photographer. I'm a food guy. I'm a guy with high cholesterol. <laughs> Uh, on our show, what we like to do is we like to pull the curtain, man. We like to talk about the real shit behind everything that we love and that I know you love. Get rid of that Instagram filter. Stop creating our own narratives on what we're supposed to be based upon what we see other people do and actually learn about what it's really like to do this stuff. Find the little nooks and crannies to get obsessed with and to help you develop a sense of style and a sense of taste for this. Um, so thanks for being here and uh, thank you everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or following the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod on Instagram. I appreciate everybody. I've been trying to keep you up to date with uh, everything that I'm doing. A lot of podcasting lately, um, but I've also been doing a lot of film prep lately, uh, a lot of food excursions, uh, a lot of really exciting uh, hangouts. So I've been trying to post all that stuff there. And I've really appreciated the interaction that I'm getting from you, the listener. You guys continue to send me great ideas for guests. You guys are, I love it when you watch an episode and immediately write to me and tell me why you like it. And if you notice, I repost that stuff. And if you double notice, I usually tag the guests that's in the show too, because they love to hear about it. I really like this community that we're building. So if you want to be a part of it, go follow our shit on Instagram be part of the club um all right well let's not let's not delay any further i'll catch up with you guys after we do this episode so strap yourselves in hopefully you have a nice cold beer maybe you've got maybe you're not drinking maybe you're sober at this moment maybe so learn to make yourself like a fresca right i don't mean like the fresca you know what frescas are you know, like the the sparkling water with like hints of fruit and all that stuff get yourself a nice cold drink all right, Mike, stop fucking rambling. Get, you, get yourself a nice cold drink. Strap on those noise-canceling headphones. Crank them up to 11. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Thanks for being on the show, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited to get nerdy with you about food, about photography, <laughs> about uh, all the stuff that uh, that keeps my cholesterol high. So I'm, <laughs> I'm here to serve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pumped, man. Um, <clears throat> so let's uh, let's get started at the beginning here, man. Like, why food? Like, what, you can tell stories, obviously. Why'd you pick food? Well, it, it's really family that came down to it. I met my wife. Um, she was a vegetarian. I had no idea what the hell you feed vegetarians other than <laughs> salads. So I, uh, I've always loved to cook for roommates and people in college just for fun. But like, I didn't know what I was doing. So um, she is, her family's all Mexican. They're from Chihuahua. Uh, so I started there and learning authentic Mexican cuisine from different family members. And uh, over time, I just, I learned how to make a lot of vegetarian dishes there, Asian food, Indian food, and it kind of just started to develop. Nice. Okay. So you met your, you met your wife, right? And then Mm -hmm. uh, you learned to make Mexican food. So what were the first dishes that you learned to make? Really, I know this sounds funny, but it's really salsas and uh, sauces. So like enchilada sauce, because you make cheese enchiladas, yeah, all different man. kinds of like homemade sauces and moles, because I still like to eat meat. So my big thing was, if I'm going to cook, what can I cook that would we could both eat? but I could just drape it in a sauce that makes sense for both of it. <laughs> so I'd make chicken, I'd make her some, uh, you know, squash or potatoes or beans and the sauce just made sense. So that's kind of how I started. <laughs> well, dude, it makes all the sense in the world. You're talking about like, what do they say? They call them like mother sauces. Essentially you're yeah. talking about the, the core essentials, like the, the essentials that you would have in your fridge or in your pantry, you all sort of rotate around those different types of sauces Mm-hmm. I, I got real fucking nerdy about Mexican food when I moved out here to Los Angeles. I had, of course, had what I call white guy Mexican food prior to that, <laughs> you know, anywhere else. And then coming out here, it was like, holy shit. Like, I, I love going into the Mexican-themed uh, grocery stores and getting, like, the dry chilies. There's a whole palette of flavors mm-hmm. that I've never had before that – you know, that when you were growing up, at least with me, what am I, 43 now? So when I was growing up, it was like fucking chilies. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, There's this a big difference. <laughs> big, big difference. Yeah. No, my, my parents are from the Midwest. So their version of Mexican food is very different than like what I get down here in Phoenix. Um, uh, I was born and raised here, but I mean, we still had, um, you know, Americanized Mexican yeah. food growing up. Um, but yeah, that, that really did um, open up my eyes when I got to know her family and, and more about her culture. Um, you know, I wanted to do it right. So I worked really hard at just nailing everything. And I wanted to have my own enchilada sauce, my own mole, um, my own various guacs and sauces. And mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's that, that was kind of the core is I really just honed in on the fundamentals. Uh, we're going to get into like doing your own thing because I like this tangent, but let's keep with this fundamental stuff. So, um, so how did you, I like just diving in. This is great. So how, how did you, uh, get started with it? Were you just learning about the different seasonings and spices or were you just focusing on different dishes? Were you, t- were you just eating different dishes? Like where did it start for you with that? 
Well, I have a design background, so that was my major. I have a bachelor of science in design. And so I'm very curious and just creative and always trying to understand the process. Um, my major was in industrial design, so wow. product development. So lots of research. So I'm that nerd where I'm like, okay, enchilada sauce, you know, what's in it? And I'd find 20 <laughs> different varieties of it. But I was like, okay, so I see these are here, but why? So what I ended up doing is I'd go to the store, buy chilies or vegetables, and I'd try to figure out every single way I could cook with them Mm -hmm. so that I understood how to draw out the best flavors, how to make them fresh or how to stop them from being bitter. And I really tried to master in on the actual ingredients more than just the dishes. I I really wanted to have a good understanding. Um, And that was kind of a foundation for the whole evolution of everything I do is it, it, it built this better understanding of what the heck I'm cooking with. Yeah. See, it's funny because I, I went through sort of a similar thing and I'm completely the opposite. So I don't have the design background. I get techie to a certain extent, but if it gets too techie, then I this passionate motherfucker gets bored. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, for me, when I got into food, um, I, you know, come from an Italian family, so it's always food. Everything's circulating food. What are we eating today? What are we eating tomorrow? When's the meal happen? All that kind of shit. Um, and so when I moved out of my parents' place, I took it for granted, and I was like, fuck, I, I A, don't know how to cook all the stuff that I used to have growing up, and then B, everywhere that I go, no one does the kind of food that I had when I was growing up. So mm-hmm. I had to kind of learn it. So for me, I came from the recipe game. So it was like, okay, so I went and I hung out with my parents, or I went and I hung out with my grandparents, and like, here's the recipe, follow the recipe. So I would do that really well for a while, but then I hit a point where I go, I don't understand the essentials of this. Um, <laughs> I don't understand why oregano tastes good with this, and I don't understand why you put a, uh, a teaspoon of salt in the sauce. Like, I don't, I don't get what that stuff is. And so it was kind of an uh, eye-opening epiphany because I went through the same kind of thing you were talking about, which was like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to spend some time and taste all the different seasonings on their own. I'm going to go through the process of just playing with the different seasonings on their own, and I'm going to learn essentially the language of this culture of food uh, so that I can write my own stories with it. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and you've hit on it before, but you know, as a white guy making my own enchilada sauce and my own house chili rub and stuff like that, like out of respect of the culture, I need to uh, sit down and understand it. I need to take the time. Um, I can't just step in and say, oh, I'm just going to taste these on my own and figure it out. Like that's why I learned the basics and, you know, ran it by her family and her and um, you know, they'd come over, they'd eat, we'd taste things. It was good. And they'd ask me, wow, what, how did you, how did you season your beans? Um, or, you know, and I, I'd, I'd say the same, you know, about their, their different foods too. And it was, it was a, a nice harmony of me just diving in and really learning. It sounds like a fairy tale. Are you so, like, <laughs> cause I, rem- I remember, well, remember she was a vegetarian. So, <laughs> okay. Cause I, cause I know I've cooked for like relatives, like uh, my girlfriend's uh, uh, grandmother. Uh, she was so, she was the person that would cook in that family all the time. So I think when I showed up, she was very threatened by me, <laughs> but I remember the process of like cooking for her first time. She's like, I don't like the way it tastes. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so it sounds like you had a better experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, my wife, um, 
she she can cook and she could cook, but it wasn't something she like sought out and enjoyed. I always did. I just loved to create. So for me, it was a challenge, a challenge to uh, not only f- figure out how to feed her, um, but also to impress her, impress her family um, and just make me feel good as a provider. Yeah, dude, a hundred percent. There's something to be said about that impressing of the family, you know, going to a barbecue and being the person that they go, Hey, will you uh, work the grill? And you're like, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I'm, I think the first like white guy married into her immediate family. So like, Oh wow. It, it was, it was kind of, it was just kind of a big deal for me, um, to be able to, show her dad, um, you know, and show her mom and and the rest of the family, like, Hey, I'm here. I can take care of her. It's okay. So, um, it's hard because her dad's a restaurateur. So even to this day, Oh wow, dude. He, he, he always is like, Oh Brad, he's like, I know you're writing a cookbook, but if, if you need help making some salsas, just call me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that for, okay. So he works in a restaurant business. So that first meal must have been like high stress for you. You must have been freaking out for that. Yeah, yeah, um, it, yeah. He does. Uh, he lives in Cancun, so he does. He has. Uh, he's been in the restaurant business down there, like in the hotel strip and stuff like that. So, um, and he's he's been in food and uh, beverage industry pretty much as long as I know him, and I think a couple decades before that. So, no, he's he's got a lot of experience. And a lot of input. <laughs> yeah, I bet, dude. Do you remember? I, I, I'm just, I'm like uh, painting this picture in front of me here of, of what this day was like for you. <laughs> do, you do you remember what you made? Do you remember what you cooked for him? Gosh, you know I, know, I remember I grilled a bunch of steaks because every time he comes to the U.S., that's really what he wants. So I probably. I probably did something around steak and steak tacos with some salsas and kept it simple. Nice. Um, Because the one thing I've learned, especially with Mexican food, is less is more. Uh, You know, if you can master those basics, I mean, they taste just incredible. You don't need to go all out fancy. Yeah. Um, So, but uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. He loves barbecue, though. So that was kind of a cool way for me to show off the meat side of of the cooking that I like to do too. Um, Cause their barbecue in, in Mexico is very different from American barbecue. What are the differences do you see? Really? Um, ours is obviously like slow smoked, like in smokers, but I would say the, the flavor profile more than anything um, kind of the sweet heat um, where we're using sugar instead of like, you know, fruits and agave and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more, it's more rich. It's more savory. Um, I wish, and that's kind of, you know, my whole goal with chilies and smoke is to show how to kind of liven up those flavors with things that I've learned about, you know, chilies. Um, so that, that's really a lot of, of what I do today is kind of taking, the combo of the two worlds and, and merging them into something new. Which I like. I think that's one of the reasons why I was pumped about talking to you. Cause I've, I've been, uh, uh, you know, not a professional cook, but I've been an at home cook for years. I've also been like a, a barbecue guy for years. And then I've worked with pit masters and talked to pit masters, had these guys on the show. And I think that the one thing that, Look, it's both inspiring and disappointing about barbecue, American barbecue. Mm -hmm. I think the inspiring aspect of American barbecue is that it's traditional. 
Like the recipes are passed down over time. The methods are passed down over time. Like how do you season your meat? How do you smoke it? How do you get the perfect thing? What kind of sauce are you? Kansas style, you Carolina style, all that kind of shit. I think that's very inspiring to pass down tradition, but then it's also disappointing because I think a lot of barbecue dudes get caught up in tradition where mm-hmm. like, uh, I'm not going to drop any names this week, but I just had barbecue out here and Los Angeles. I have yet to find a great barbecue spot out here in LA. And I, there's a few that I want to try that I think are going to do it, but it's very hard to find out here and you go and they just do a traditional and it's boring and bland and traditional. They're not doing anything exciting with it. And it's like, fuck man, why don't you guys swap it out? I mean, there's a huge Mexican culture here. Why are we not mixing like the seasons and spices for this stuff? Like, why do I go into a spot and get like, uh, like a rack of dried baby back ribs that just have salt and pepper on them. Like if you gotta, it, you gotta dry it's them interesting. out. You know, I mean, I, when it comes to chefs, I always think there's two camps, and we need both. Just to be clear, there we need tradition. We have to have that core foundation of the strive for perfection on repeating amazing core recipes over and over. But we also need innovators, people pushing and changing for something new to discover something new yeah. Um, yeah. And, and breaking out of what we think is, is tradition. Because um, I remember chef Edward Lee um, out of Kentucky once said that if, if food is always traditional, uh, then it's dead. It never moves forward. It never has new life. Um, and it's so important to have both aspects, but you know, on that note, that was the biggest reason why I shifted in and started making chilies and smoke is because what was happening is fast forward a couple years after we got married, I'm still making vegetarian food, a lot of Indian food um, mm-hmm. and Eastern Asian food now. Um, but I'm also making barbecue. I'm so sick of making 12, 14 pound briskets and <laughs> them just being salt and pepper briskets. And like, then I make her these just wildly flavorful foods and I'm just like, screw this. So I started taking my barbecue and seasoning it in the ways that we were eating the other food. And I was like, why is nobody doing this? And at the time I, I didn't even know Instagram was around. So I just, it was Google for me. And there was like nobody doing kind of like globalized flavors with American barbecue. Um, yeah, yeah. At least not on a big scale that I could see. Fast forward, my wife was like, you, you got to put your stuff online. Um, she's the one who pushed me into making chilies and smoke and sharing this because I was the mad scientist with papers all in my office of recipes. And, um, <laughs> but it, it started making sense. All of a sudden, I'm p- making fun plated dishes I love fine dining and studying it. So I'd study how to master vegetables within a certain culture and then try and see how can I pair that with my style of barbecue. And I started coming up with really fun, creative, just combinations that were really outside there. And that's, that's what helped me get started on social media. See, that's great. And I, whenever I do these episodes, uh, I'm always drawing the parallels between cooking and food and filmmaking and photography, all that kind of stuff. And it's really about understanding the language of, of where you're coming from, understanding the history of where you're coming from so that you can build on it. And it's mm-hmm. it's nice to hear that that's what you're doing. It's, it's the inspiration that you find and the excitement that you find in in encompassing what's what you're experiencing in real life 
with these traditions. And then that ends up telling a new story because, you know, when we eat food, sure, we need sustenance, right? But if it was just about not dying, then we would eat the basics and then move on. Like, Mm -hmm. we're obsessed with stories as a culture right now. We're obsessed with storytelling and and escapism and and romanticism. And so um, food is that for a lot of people. It's that for me, man. Like, if I'm going to go spend cash and go out somewhere, it's the vibe, it's the experience that I'm paying for. You know, mm-hmm. I can cook shit at home, but I want to go uh, experience someone else's life and I want to experience someone else's experience and story through food, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally agree. And it's hard because I, I I think social media can be a great tool and I do enjoy it, but I also think that it opens a gateway for people to kind of jump ahead without learning the foundations. So you'll see a lot of times... Um, where somebody will make some kind of Asian infused like chicken wings or pork belly. Um, and you know that they probably just went and Googled the first two recipes and, and threw it together and threw it on pork. Um, instead of maybe thinking about, you know, what is the history of this dish? Is there an authentic way that's not the Americanized version? Like take, um, take orange chicken, for example. I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, Panda Express orange chicken <laughs> is always going to be in the back of my mind whenever I go to the mall. I mean, it, it was it was awesome growing up, and you know it's totally evolved over time. And it's it's spicy now. They they do it with beef and pork and all these different dishes, and it's cool to understand the foundation of something like that. I know it's not you know necessarily like an authentic Chinese dish, but even General So's chicken completely different recipe than what we have here. Yeah. Um, in, yeah. in America, one of the main ingredients is hoisin sauce. They don't use that in their traditional dish. Um, so, you know, when people are making general so's chicken wings, have they explored the history behind it? Do they know the fact that there's no hoisin sauce? You know, what's the difference between that? And I, I wish that I would see more people dive into the history and talk about it because I just think that. So cool. And you can be new and do new things and still pay respects to the history. And that's, that's really the, the thin line that I always walk when I'm cooking food flavored and seasoned with other people's cultures is the fact that I know in my heart, I've spent that time trying and to understand and I'm always learning more. Yeah. Well, and then for those listening, <laughs> I know that some of you may be like, uh, look, I'm not I'm not in this for history. I'm in this to eat. And it's like, well, okay, if you go back and you look at the history of these foods, essentially at its core, at the beginning of all of these lines, it's someone trying to take something that isn't edible and make it edible. And so what you're essentially doing when you look at barbecue or if you look at like uh, uh, barbacoa, like traditional barbacoa recipes, they're taking like a very chewy, like really hard to eat cut of meat. And they've, because it's the only cut of meat that they had uh, to deal with, they figured out how to make it delectable. They figure out, figured out how to make it editable, edible. And so over time, they've mastered the arts of uh, that technique, like, like barbecue, barbecue slave food. That's where it mm-hmm. comes from initially. It's from slavery and, and and giving the slaves like a really shitty cut of fucking meat. And they're out there figuring out how to smoke it, how to slow cook it, how to pull it apart. 
Um, and then the next thing you know, it becomes a fucking delicacy. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing with Italian food. Like all, if you go out to a fancy Italian food restaurant and you spend big bucks on a plate of fucking pasta, it's like that comes from, that's poor food. That initially mm -hmm. comes from like lower income uh, families trying to figure out how to take the rosemary bush that's in their front yard and the lemon tree that's in their front yard and mix it with <laughs> some flour and water and make it into a delicacy, you know? And so, yeah. and so my point is, is that if we learn the history of it and we learn what they did in desperate situations to make it taste good, then we start to get those techniques, which make the core element taste so fucking great. Um, mm. And then we could fuck with it. You know what I mean? Totally. Well, and, and, and I think for me, in a place of responsibility, you know, I've got a business called Chilies and Smoke, and the majority of my cooking is Southwestern um, yep. and, and, you know, Latin American and so forth. Um, so for me to stand here and say that I have an understanding and I can make new dishes, not just familiar ones with twists, but brand new ones, I feel like I have a responsibility to, to understand and show homage to those other cultures because it's... It's not my place. I mean, this is America. Anything you cook here is American food. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's why it's good to look out at where the food came from and just have that understanding. It is time to take a moment and uh, let's talk about some sponsors. Let's get into some stories around uh, the people that support the show. Um, and as I've said on prior episodes, these aren't your typical ad reads. I typically go off the rails and I talk about my experiences with this stuff. Um, and so there's a lot of like little great nuggets in here. So stick around. Check it out. Uh, first up, supporting our show is our first ever brewery sponsor. So... Bear Republic is sponsoring the show. Have you guys heard of Bear Republic's beers? Their craft brews, their craft IPAs. I've, I've been loving, I've been drinking these guys. I've been loving these guys for years. I was first uh, turned on to them while drinking Racer 5 IPA. Um, and since then, every time I go to a bar and I see a really cool can, I'm like, who is that? And they're like, it's Bear Republic. So of course I would reach out to them to be sponsoring the show and it is so cool that they are supporting us and they are helping us make episodes like today's episode possible so um this is an ad read uh for people that are of drinking age okay so here in the u.s i think everywhere it's still 21 years old so you guys waiting to get there you know you got to stick around a little while you got to wait um but when you do let me give you some advice because i know that when you first start drinking beer I did this when I was a kid. You get excited and you're like, man, let's, what are we going to do? Let's go out and get like some big old 30 rack of something cheap. Maybe it's like an old Detroit brew that's been around since the beginning of time. And we're just going to water, make our way through it. Some folks, when they start drinking beer, they're like, wow, the taste is pretty intense. You know, I want to get something that's easy to drink and I want to get hammered quick, right? Get over that as fast as you can. You know, I know that a lot of you young kids are going to start that way. But get over it as quickly as you can. Here's a weird little story. I remember when I was a kid, my first beer experience, and I'm not going to tell you how old I was. Let's pretend like I was 21, okay? 
Uh, my first beer experience was back when I used to be an assistant. I used to work in car mechanic shops. And my job when I was a kid was uh, I would go around and clean up after the guy. So I would make sure that all the tools got cleaned. I'd make sure they all went back to the right place. I would also scrub the floors. I would help sweep the spots out. I mean, it was a pretty entry level position, but it enabled me to be not only in the environment where we were working on like cool DeLoreans, like I got to work on DeLoreans. I got to help rebuild uh, like 1970s Corvettes. I remember we took like the whole fiberglass body off of this Corvette that they found in a junkyard. And then we just stripped it. We stripped everything out of it and built it from the frame back up. It was so much fun to do that stuff as a kid. And one of my first beer experiences was, uh, I remember this vividly, we were having lunch and they, they handed me a tuna fish sandwich and they handed me some can of something. I can't even remember what the beer was, but they handed me a can of beer. <laughs> and I remember the guy said to me, enjoy it, take your time with it. You know, like it isn't about getting, we're, we're not getting drunk, we're on the job today. <laughs> I don't want to say you should drink on the job, but we're on the job today, you know? So just enjoy it with your sandwich. And I remember sort of drinking it and, and realizing what it did with that sandwich, how it paired with that sandwich. And I think that really shaped the way I drank beers. And that really shaped the way I drank alcohol as I went further into my adulthood and further into my, my career drinking. And so when someone says, do you drink responsibly? Whenever you hear that ad, you always roll your fucking eyes, right? Because you're just like, all right, so you're just trying to, you're trying to fucking put the kibosh on my party here, man. But I say that differently. When I say drink responsibly, I say take your time with it. Sometimes it is worth spending more money on a microbrew that oftentimes has a higher alcohol percentage. So you're actually, if you're someone that is trying to get a buzz on, you're actually getting a buzz on quicker, but um, has different flavor profiles. Because there are these folks out here that uh, are brewmasters in these microbreweries. And by microbreweries, let's sort of break that down even further, right? These are companies that are owned by families. These are companies that are owned by friends, by startup guys, uh, by women that have been in a world of brewmaster, uh, brew making and beer making since they were kids. And they are all about flavors. They are all about combinations of flavors. Are you an IPA person? Hops. There are a hundred thousand different ways to have hops right now, which is very exciting. Are you someone that likes like a Czech Pilsner? I love those right now. They're light, they're crisp, but they still add flavor. Then notice what happens on a hot day when you grab yourself a Pilsner and you pair it with a cheeseburger. If you pair it the right way, it helps cut through the grease. It helps cut through the flavor it helps clean your palate introduce a new taste into your palate so that way when you put that cheeseburger back in your mouth it fires all those things again right it tastes like a whole new cheeseburger it's really great if you're smart about it you compare beers with food the same way you compare wine with food and there are a bunch of different options out there and this is what i like about being a beer drinker in the modern era there are over 9,000 microbreweries in the United States. That is insane to me, considering that when I was a kid, the beer market was owned by a couple of giant conglomerates that you felt like just had these huge fucking vats that they would just 
pouring mediocre ingredients into and then just dumping it out for the masses to slug their way through on a Friday night after a shitty week's worth of work. You know what I mean? So I love it right now. I love going to bars. One of my favorite bars here in California is Glendale Tap. Love that place because they have such a great variety of beers and you just sort of go in there and i like to stay blissfully ignorant on how a lot of beers are made eventually i'll get a brewmaster on the show and i'll you know i'll break my rules for that but i like oftentimes just going in and picking beers based upon the type of brew it is and just the graphic design on the can because i know if a company spends enough if a small company spends enough money on a great uh, graphic design they're really fucking proud of that brew you know what I mean? Bear Republic. Head on over to bearrepublic.com and check out all their small batches. They make some really tasty, really awesome stuff. And sometimes it's hard to find. Here's the cool thing. You can actually buy it online on their website. They ship to specific states. They ship here in, the, in California for sure. So if you're in California, you could totally get it here. Um, but if they don't ship the beers to you, they will let you know where you can get it in your state. Okay, so they may list bars, they may list uh, like Drizzly might, ha- might carry it there. They'll tell you where you can get those brews. And they run really cool small batch stuff. Really cool collectible cans, really cool stuff. Uh, I, th- th- this is the comic book nerd in me too that likes to collect these things. So Bear Republic is the place to go. And we're offering a discount code to all our listeners. If you use the code PROCESS15, This will give you 15% off their entire online store, both beer and merchandise. They have great merch there too. Great beer t-shirts and everything else. Remember being a kid, I would always love to wear cool beer t-shirts. And I even still do now. You guys see me wearing swag all the fucking time. I love that shit. Um, So head on over to bearrepublic.com and check them out. And follow them on Instagram at at bearrepublic. And then just let them know. Like, thank you for supporting and love with the process. Just let them know. There are a bunch of you super fans listening to the show. Do me a favor, head on over to Bear Republic's Instagram right now and just let them know, hey, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making the food episodes possible. I'm in love with the process. Um, Love those guys, man. Fucking love those guys. Also supporting the show are good friends over at Fujifilm. Now, maybe you are an influencer, right? Maybe you're someone that likes to take pictures and take photographs of your food and post it online. I dare you not to use your cell phone to do it. And I get it. Cell phone makes things super easy. Here's what I don't like about taking photos with my cell phone. When I'm in the middle of framing up a shot or if I'm in the middle of trying to uh, make a shot happen, Gina texts me. And she usually texts me with some sort of issue that takes me right out of being creative. And I fucking hate it. I love her, but it happens. Or I may get a text from a client. Takes me right out of being creative. Right? Why does the device that I'm shooting photos with uh, like alert me to fucking deal with life problems? I just got a fucking text. I have to pay a power bill. I don't want that while I'm shooting. Come on, man. And the iPhone works so fucking hard at trying to recreate the simplest things that a normal camera can do. Like, ooh, wow, we have a software thing that helps create depth of field. How about I just use a camera with a lens that actually does depth of field? How about I do something that it isn't an algorithm creating that depth of field so that the light is actually passing through that lens and creating all these beautiful imperfections? The light is creating that, not the ones and zeros. 
It's very important to me when I shoot my stuff. And when you see the difference, you go, how can we recreate this? People that are creating apps for the iPhone are desperately trying to create all those simple, generic, not generic, organic, that's the word, simple, organic aberrations that you get with shooting with glass, right? So why not shoot with a real camera when you do this stuff? It feels cool to have a bag. It feels cool to pick that camera up. It's like, for me, I feel like Indiana Jones with his little sandbag and that little uh, golden skull whenever I pick up my camera. It's like, I got it. I got it. Now it's time to shoot, you know? What am I shooting with right now? I am shooting with... So both Gina and I got cameras from Fujifilm. She got her medium format one, which we talked about in a prior episode. She's all excited about that. Great. I don't need a medium format. I want something that is fast to shoot on the street. I almost want like a street camera, but I also want a camera that does great video. And uh, Fujifilm makes this X-H2S camera. It's awesome. It's a great shooter. As far as stills are concerned, it's that camera that comes with the very compact lenses. So that way, if you're out on the street and you want to be, you know, sort of incognito, uh, it's fucking awesome for that. By the way, I haven't talked about it yet on the show. Fujifilm's autofocus is the best on the market. It's fucking scary. It's really scary the way the autofocus works on these cameras. Um, you can actually draw in facial recognition. You can change the autofocus in different ranges, and it's fast. It is super fucking fast, super responsive. I'm telling you, it is the best autofocus I've used with any rig out there. So if you're shooting yourself, right, this screen can flip around so that you can see yourself. And maybe you're doing blogs. Maybe you're just shooting content for the internet. It is the perfect camera for that. Now, if you're someone that is out there shooting music videos, you need a second shooter. Maybe you need a stunt camera. This is a great camera for that. Um, this rig will shoot 4K ProRes uh, H.264. H I think it does H.265. Don't quote me on that. Um, but uh, I love it. Let me see if I can look at some of the stats here instead of running through things off the top of my head. Here we go. Powerful and creative video. Features make the X-H2S the go-to device, both for hybrid image makers and dedicated motion professionals. Up to 90 minutes of footage can be internally recorded with a single battery, which is pretty awesome, with a wide range of resolutions and frame rates up to 6.2K at 30p in uh, OpenGate 3.2, 4K 120p, and full HD at 240p. Those are slow motion speeds for these of you who don't understand what it is that I'm saying. Uh, this delivers unparalleled, unparalleled flexibility within the X-Series lineup. Additionally, the ability to record 10-bit 422 Apple ProRes footage internally to G, I'm sorry, to CF Express Type B memory cards. I had never used these before. I just got my hands on one. They're pretty interesting. Offer incredible post-production flexibility. It does. While the X-Trans 5 sensor and 14-stop dynamic range optimizes the level of image detail across a uniquely wide exposure range. What does all that mean for the person that's listening? That's like, Mike, you just ran a bunch of tech at me. The camera has the ability um, to shoot in multiple lighting scenarios. Um, you're shooting high enough detailed video pieces so that way when you're in post and you're doing color processing on them, 
it doesn't start to get chunky and blocky in the shadows okay and what i love about this camera is its LUTs. its internal LUTs are fantastic fantastic i'm telling you right now if you get your hands on a fuji film just look at the stuff that we do online i'm actually shooting with LUTs with this rig i like to fucking sandwich myself in with these LUTs. it forces me to be creative with them because sometimes when you shoot raw and you're doing stuff in post and like the world is your oyster as far as color is concerned i don't know you get lost in that creativity comes from boundaries so i enjoy setting lots sometimes i'll just shoot with the black and white lots sometimes i'll use their super fancy uh fuji uh what is it what is it called it's like vista or something i gotta look it up I should have these in front of me, but they actually have a LUT that is the equivalent of what the Fuji 35mm film look like. So I use that all the time. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous camera. Great rig. Check it out. For all those of you uh, that are listening that shoot food out there and product stuff, definitely look into getting a Fuji. All right. That's it. Let's get back to the show. brought up an interesting point where you're like social media and you feel like people just look at recipes online they go through the process of like taking these recipes and mashing them together which i've done before i'm not saying that you can't do that but there's something so much more enjoyable when you go hang out with people that cook food for you and you Mm -hmm. go have a barbecue or you go uh hang out with friends or our family of friends and folks that you would never mix with and you've never would believe um, that you would be eating with a group of, like that. And then having that food and having that family experience and then eating, essentially ingesting their history. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the most inspiring, for me at least, that's the most inspiring way to find new ways of cooking. I love that shit, dude. Yeah, I do too. I do too. That's where it's worth the extra money and the extra time. It All, all about that. Yeah, man. And like engaging with people and uh, those of you listening, do you hear a motif in every fucking episode? <laughs> it's it's <laughs> engaging with people. It's it's literally getting out and getting past that. I get so frustrated sometimes when I'm going looking for something to eat, or if my girlfriend's like, "What restaurant are we going to go through?" And we start like cycling through online articles on restaurants. I'm like, "This is fucking depressing." This is <laughs> this is the same process that I go through to find like. You know, what's a great deal on toilet paper? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this is not how I want to find my food. Let's just go out. Let's go into an area and figure it out, you know? Yeah, it, that's actually kind of hard for me on the opposite side because, like, I cook all the time. And my kids, they have no idea how good they have it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, for us, when we go out, I'm just like, what's a place we can just relax? I, I will literally go to a Mexican restaurant and just get chips and salsa and some guac and margaritas. I don't care about going out and finding the next inspiration or the best restaurant. Sometimes... I just want to get out <laughs> and go sit with people. Yeah, dude. Um, yeah. And that's how, that's a lot of times how we pick where we go. Yeah, man. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> well, we can go to completely down that road and we will eventually. So let's, let's talk a bit more about chilies and smoke. So what, sure. are, what exactly are you doing now? You do, you're doing recipes and content, like explain to the audience what it is. Yeah. So basically what I do is I have business writing recipes, at, for new ideas with barbecue, infusing global flavors. And really the name Chilies and Smoke came about because I felt that 
the combination of smoke and any type of chili around the world uh, can be utilized. I wanted it to be a globally recognized name when you think about that, because those are ingredients we see everywhere. And mm-hmm. what I'm doing right now is writing recipes and sharing uh, new ideas. So I do write recipes for a number of different companies, um, different partners. I am in the process uh, about almost halfway through a cookbook that comes out next year. Um, and I, I hope that at some point I can do this full time. Um, it's, it's fun to test new ingredients, new meats, um, from cuts all around the world, uh, new combinations of seasonings, mm-hmm. um, you know, coming up with different flavors and, and honing in on ideas is, is really, really fun for me. And, um, you know, that's, that's my goal is I just hope that I can, open people's eyes to new ideas about barbecue. Now, dude, that's really cool, man. I love that. Um, well, let's get people salivating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, <clears throat> all right. So let's talk about top three recipes that you love right now. Right now. I know not not all time. Let's just talk right now. Like, what are you into right now? Right now, I am... I'm really into I'm really into tacos to be honest with you. Um okay. and in finding I I love finding new ways to grill food to go into tacos and and kind of mixing what we know is traditional like Mexican food with more like South American style food like from um Brazil and Argentina. And that's really where I'm kind of exploring right now is looking at some of those dishes. Cause I think barbecue is one thing, you know, Mexican food is another, but grilling over the fire from South American cooking is a whole nother game. Um, and it's, it's heavy, heavy beef mm-hmm. and a lot of delicious vinegar, um, acidic toppings that are so different than salsas. Um, so that's really kind of where I'm really drawn into right now and, and exploring more and seeing how can I infuse those acidic and herbal flavors from South America into some of the Central American things um, using barbecue techniques. Um, so I, I've been exploring that a lot. Um, and a lot of that's actually going to be um, drawn out in the cookbook, too. So I'm, I'm pretty pumped up about that pretty awesome and, and yeah i don't think you should give away all your recipes here but what uh what do you mean by the so what would a topping be what would like a vinegary topping topping be for, for you yeah so there's like a, a basic one in um uh brazil would be their brazilian vinaigrette um and it's basically bell peppers tomatoes um onions uh, oregano and then uh, white vinegar and oil or that's really the core of it sometimes they add parsley sometimes they add cilantro mm-hmm. but when you eat it it's not spicy at all it's just like this incredibly bright vibrant it's like not a dressing it's not a pico it's like this thing in between and it goes on everything i mean every single kind of grilled meat you could dip a piece of grilled bread in it it's just insane. And to me, it's like when, when I discovered that a couple years ago, I just started playing with different combinations of vegetables to kind of understand it more and, and what makes it what it is. And I mean, that's just one condiment of so many different things out there that like we don't eat here. 
Yeah. And we should be because it's so damn good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, dude, I'm a big vinegar guy. And I think that it works so well, especially with fatty cuts of meat because it just cuts through all that fat. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have like that very sort of uh, like thick, fatty bite of a taco or you get like that really fatty brisket, having that vinegar to just sort of wash your palate, it's perfect, dude. Yeah, I, I'd probably say one of the biggest trends in that area in the last couple of years is chimichurri. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you see it everywhere now. It's, it's, it's basically a, a staple um, for a lot of people grilling, which is, it, it, it's delicious for good reasons. I'm glad it's getting its spotlight. I also think that there's other things just like chimichurri out there that deserve a spotlight too. So that's my goal is to discover those and adapt those um, so that I can bring those out and showcase those as well. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of Korean stuff lately. So I've been playing oh. with like a scallion dipping sauce and like mixing uh, rice vinegar with uh, soy. And uh, it's just so fucking good. <laughs> I'm going to give you one of my favorite combinations ever. And it sounds weird, but I swear it's good. Oh. Is really thinly sliced smoked pastrami and kimchi. Oh, I, and, I love this dude, idea. like... It is it is just this mind blowing experience when you take a bite and a sandwich with those two things because kimchi is really it it's just basically a, a form of Korean sauerkraut. So if you think about it in that way and you swap it, um, the the a lot of the spices that are in a pastrami mix are used in different ways in Korean food too. Not everything, but yeah. similarly, yeah, and the aromatics and the the sharp uh, bites that you get from the crust um it totally works um it's it's just incredible you got to try it uh, pastrami and kimchi dude i'm in um i'm totally in <laughs> i'm, <laughs> I'm to- so hungry right I'm, now <laughs> dude i'm totally in here's a here bear with me on this little short story you'll find this interesting my first uh exposure to kimchi and korean barbecue i don't think i've said this on the show before my first exposure was years ago. I was in Chicago. I went to Chicago with my brother. And one thing that I have talked about on the show is I like to go on what I call bar safaris. And so I, I will go into a city that I'm working in. I might be doing a music video or something. And I will plan out like two or three days after I do my job. And it's usually like a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And in that period of time, we go on what we call bar safari, which essentially... I would have either my assistant or one of my friends with me make me a list of like the shittiest dive bars, the really interesting weird bars, like are there speakeasies? And we'd make a list of stuff. And then on a Monday, we'd hit that list. And the rule was you go to the first bar, talk to the bartender, you tell them what they're doing. You have one drink, one thing of food per bar, by the way. And you go Mm. in, talk to the guy and ask for their list. And if they give you a list that's better than your list, then you throw your list out and then you continue. And what it what it does is it sends you down this rabbit hole, right? <laughs> and so we were doing this in Chicago. We got a list from somebody and Chicago can be pretty rough. You get out into the outskirts of Chicago. There's a lot of gang violence. There's a lot of rough stuff that happens out there. And so I'm riding in this car with my brother who uh, is very straight-laced. He's a firefighter. He's like, where the fuck are we going? He's giving me this look. Drive out to the middle of nowhere, and we go to what I think is going to be a speakeasy. And it's called, and many of you in Chicago may know this, it's called the liquor store. So we drive out to the spot, go inside, and it's a liquor store. 
walk inside, and there's this sweet older lady, I think she was an older Korean lady, sitting behind the counter, and there were just coolers full of fucking, you know, of uh, of booze in the spot. <laughs> and it's empty. We walk in there, and she looks at us weird, and she goes, uh, are you here for the barbecue? <laughs> <laughs> and so of course i go yeah <laughs> and she goes she goes id give me your id and so i hand her an id and then she like either hits a button i can't remember she hits a button or she opens a back a back door or a cooler door or a refrigerator door and we walk through and it's a speakeasy and so we walk <laughs> we walk into the speakeasy and uh, we go in it's dark we're like the first people there um, and there's this uh, beautiful bartender behind the bar. And she's like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I was like, we're here for the barbecue. And she looks at me sideways and she goes, no, you're not. And I go, yeah, yeah, we're here for the barbecue. Because here's the thing, listeners, just commit. <laughs> you find yourself in trouble, just commit as if you're supposed to be there. And uh, she goes, all right, here's the deal. There is a barbecue tonight. But it's a barbecue for friends and family of the owners of this bar. You can stay if you agree to buy a bunch of drinks for me and tip me all night. And you'll be fine. And both of us go, yes, please. <laughs> and so to bring it back to what we're talking about, what it was, was the owner, the wife was Korean and the husband was Polish. And so they had a Korean-Polish barbecue, which oh, man. was fucking Amazing, dude. We're talking like uh, kielbasas and Polish sausage covered in kimchi, flavored with kimchi. It was so goddamn good. And that one event, and this is what I was talking about, getting out of your house and not just looking online, like going out and experiencing mm -hmm. fucking things. That one occasion changed the way that I barbecue sausage, the way that I barbecue like even hot dogs, the way I present hot dogs and present all that stuff because of that Korean mashup that I, that I got, you know, that's so cool. That's so, and I can only imagine how good it is. Cause I definitely know that kimchi tastes great with so many grilled meats that people have just need to try. Oh my God, dude. And, and a lot, <laughs> a lot, of you know, what's really funny. Yeah. So I built, I built this house and we moved in here last September, um, 2021. And about a month later, um, I'm setting up like my grills outside and stuff. And, my neighbor pops her head over. <laughs> come, come to find out, she's Korean. She is a manager at a local Korean barbecue place. Oh, like cool. her, her mom's coming into town from Korea to stay here for a month. Um, I'm like, oh my god, like we're gonna be best friends. <laughs> so I've already tried mom's kimchi. It's amazing. <laughs> so oh my god, dude. I hit the jackpot. <laughs> that is the jackpot. A hundred percent. That's the jackpot. Man, I love it. Um, yeah, a lot of people think kimchi is like, you know, like rotting lettuce or rotting cabbage. And you're like, ah, dude, it's the seasoning. There's so many different mm -hmm. ways that you could do it. I was just watching um, uh, Roy Choi's uh, masterclass recently, and he was talking about uh, kimchi and watermelon. And I was like, fuck, that's a really good cool Oh, idea. so good. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude, so good, man. Um, but I love, I love this stuff. Um, well, let's, so... What is one of your most, because I'm sure you've been on some interesting food experiences. Has has all of your stuff just been uh, interacted with people online or have you been able to interact with folks in real life while making recipes and meeting interesting people? 
I have been uh, doing it in person too, more later during COVID um, because kind of right when I started all this was pretty much the beginning of quarantine. I, I barely had started putting everything out there in the beginning of 2019. And I started taking it seriously right in January of 2020. So we've been on <laughs> lockdown, but last year I finally got out and started to get to cook with other people um, like myself. I started traveling and meeting other people and cooking in other places and seeing new things. And it, that's, that's been a ton of fun. Um, and I, I have a lot of plans this year to continue to do that as well. So now that, now that I kind of got, uh, you know, my feet on the ground, a lot more has been opening up and it's, it's been a lot of fun. Have you had a situation that was like kind of mind blowing to you? Have you had like a food situation that you stumbled into that you were like, how the fuck am I here? <laughs> well, so I went to this event last October and it was basically a bunch of people like me. We were hired by, uh, or I should say sponsored by a bunch of companies, grill companies, meat, spices, all that mm -hmm. to basically get together and cook incredible stuff mm -hmm. for like a week. And then, post about it, write about it. And, you know, it's advertising for the companies. Sure. And I was like, you know, I'll do that because I need to meet more of these people that do these kind of things. And honestly, I hadn't really cooked for a lot of strangers in my way before. So Ooh. I thought this was a good personal challenge. Um, so when I got there and we're starting to cook, I realized like, damn, I can cook <laughs> and I can cook live and under pressure. I'm not a keyboard chef. Um, I have just a sidebar. I have massive imposter syndrome uh -huh. because I didn't go to culinary school. I'm not a trained photographer. Um, I'm not a writer. So all of this to me has just been me hustling and figuring it out. So when I get together with other chefs and stuff like that, and they're trying my food, I'm sweating bullets. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I still struggle with the idea that I, I might belong there. Um, yeah, that, so, that, that must've been like super stressful for you. <laughs> well, I think the turning point was obviously it was stressful for me to just prove myself, you know, out, out there, but all of a sudden what was supposed to be just us cooking and, and having a feast, um, some of the sponsors decided to fly out and then bring guests. And all of a sudden we're feeding 40, 50 people a night. <laughs> and it was just supposed to be like us 10 and, we had live bands and I was cooking whole alligators and whole pigs. And I'm just like, what, what is this? <laughs> you know? um, uh, and, and I made it through and I was really happy um, because it was a great personal challenge for me. I think it's too easy to hide in an office in a kitchen yeah. and just come up with hair brainy schemes and ideas. And it's so much more to just get out there and be like, all right, you learned all this now go do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something, this is the same thing when I do movies. It's this, it, like, I love watching movies in, in a theater with people because at that point you're absorbing how they respond to it. You're, you're checking mm -hmm. to see if like the, the strategy that you've used to get an emotional response out of them is working. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 and it really shapes the way you do it again. Cause you sit there and you go, ah, okay. So I guess I was kind of arrogant about this fucking thing, and that that that, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily work. And uh, all right, I, I I understand that it doesn't work, but I also learned that this was interesting, and then that's mm -hmm. fascinating, you know. So, um, I think that's important 
to go out there and cook for people if that's what you're doing, because then you're 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 actually, especially if you're writing recipes, because then you <laughs> you'll know if people are responding to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I think for me, I didn't realize. I know this sounds really weird, but I didn't realize how organized I was. So I got out there and. I'm cooking and making things. I'm like done with prep way early. I'm making extra dishes I wasn't planning on. I'm <laughs> like, I, I was just like, dang, I didn't know. I didn't know that my hustle was um, just different at home than it. I it was. It's just weird. I <laughs> having not worked in a kitchen very much. Uh, yeah, I just didn't realize that. So that was cool. It, it, it made me feel very confident, ready to take the next step just in my career. That's that's rad, man. And yeah. the people that you were cooking with, were they supportive? Did you learn anything from these these folks? Absolutely. Um, one in particular, um, he's a guy out of Texas. He's actually from Argentina um, and specializes in live fire cooking. So we mm. used a lot of his grills down there. And he and I have become very close friends since. Uh, I talk to him every week. Um, and I've learned a lot of different methods and styles um, using his, his grills and, and his just type of cooking and ingredients. So um, him in particular was probably the, the biggest takeaway of just learning something completely new and, and being able to have that experience. Oh man, that's so cool. I'm yeah. Kind of, I'm kind of envious of that because it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's such a great experience, especially you know, coming out of fucking COVID, you know, like coming out of like the, the, the period of time where we're all locked in our place and we're trying to find ways to stay, <laughs> stay inspired and I stay, know. stay into it. And then, uh, that breath of fresh air of like going and hanging out with somebody and having a, a strong connection with somebody. <laughs> I love that. It was dude. weird. It was really weird, but it was so fun. Um, and I, I can't wait to do that again. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. So let, let me ask you this. Um, well, this is such a hacky question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, <laughs> if, uh, if you're putting on a barbecue or a party this weekend, right, what are you cooking? I actually am. Okay, um, here we go. Yeah, so and the other couple that's coming over is vegetarian. Okay. So, um, and they've got kids, two kids about the same age as mine. So all of a sudden I've got to think on my feet. Um, I'm going to be making probably chicken tinga, uh, which is, uh, like slow braised, uh, kind of spicy, but more sweet, uh, tomatoey chicken. Mm -hmm. I'm going to cook that over the grill. Um, and I'm going to also, um, grill some whole potatoes like bake them uh, in the fire mm -hmm. i'm probably going to blend those up and then we're going to have a variety of like chicken taquitos different salsas grilled salsas um i'll probably make some like smoked beans um some poblana rice so we'll kind of make it almost like a potluck and that like taquitos and tacos like that's one thing i just love about mexican food is you could just kind of swap out the insides and ha still have just amazing food that's flexible for everybody. So that's probably what I'm going to do. Um, I'll probably throw a couple cookbook recipes at them just to see what they think of the flavors too. Smart, smart dude. Uh, are you throwing the potatoes like right on the coals? Is that what you're doing? No, I'll, I'll wrap them up in foil and then throw them in the coals. Cause I want them to kind of steam. And then what I'll do is I'll scoop them out after the baked and then mash them up with like, yeah, some grass-fed butter and some cheese and chives. And um, then I'll fill some uh, tacos and taquitos with that and then fry those or 
or grill them. Nice. I haven't decided which one I'm going to do yet. Nice. And what are you grilling on? What are you using? Um, probably this weekend, I will either use, I'll probably use a combo of the Weber. I've got a Weber Master Touch, just a 22 inch. Um, you can't beat just, you know, charcoal. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I've also got a cool fire pit, um, from Argentina. Um, oh, it's, that's rad. That's it, rad. it's basically a fire pit where half of it has a giant grill grate on the top. Um, that's elevated like 10, 12 inches. So you could shove a bunch of stuff right into the firewood there and then still grill above it. Um, I might use that just cause it's fun for a group of people. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? What is it about fire? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, I think it's for me, it's just the, the fact that you're always trying to tame it. Um, it's the quest to, to tame it. It's the journey in grilling for me. Um, it, it, like, don't get me wrong. I have a pellet grill. I love being able to go out there and push a button smoke a brisket and spend time with my family. But I also love fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too, man. Me too. Like I like when I when I taught myself how to use charcoal so many years ago, it just became I felt like I was so much more connected to the cook and I felt like I had to be so much more focused on the cook. Um yeah. which I liked about it. And and I think that it ends up becoming sort of a meditation of sorts while you're, while you're there and you're spending so much time, especially if you're doing like a slow cook on something, you're, mm-hmm. you're spending so much time with your thoughts, with yourself or with somebody who uh, is hanging out with you and helping you. Um, and it just becomes the thing you do that day. And as strange as that sounds, uh, it becomes like a memory. It becomes something that is a lot more important than the shit that we normally do with our current days, which is like, you know, when your phone tells you how many hours you spent on fucking Instagram, you know what I mean? <laughs> You're yeah, just, I, I remember in my 20s having lots of those days with my friends. I had like four or five uh, guys that they were all roommates and I lived like up the street and we'd hang out almost every day and definitely every weekend. Um, but we, we'd play a lot of video games or watch movies or go to the mall or whatever. And I mean... The best times, though, were when we'd just buy a stupid amount of meat and veggies that we didn't know what we were going to do. And yeah. I would stand there on the grill trying to figure it out. And we would just drink way too much beer or bourbon and talk it out. And I mean, we'd be up to stupid hours just talking. And th- those, to me, those are way better than all the memories of us going and seeing movies, just all the conversations that you have. Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Yeah, very similar for me too. Like teaching ourselves how to barbecue and and like getting my first bullet smoker, like small little smoker and trying to yeah. figure that thing out and and going through the process of of just strangling the fire, you know, down <laughs> to where you need it to be. I mean, they, it's so much fucking fun. And so when folks ask me all the time like, you know, why do you like barbecue so much or how do why should I get into barbecue? Or where do you think I should start? I think it's really a social thing. And I think if you can find some way of, like, if you're curious about barbecue, I hate to say it, if you were close to me, folks, if you were curious <laughs> about barbecue, then come over for a barbecue. And and don't just come over to eat the fucking food. You know what I mean? Like, come over at, like, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning when that, that poor son of a bitch has got to get up <laughs> yeah. and put that shit on the smoker and, and be there for the whole process and see the process and and watch it and, and enjoy it and f- if you fall in love with it, then do it. 
if you don't, then, you know, I, I and I'm not saying this in a dismissive way, but get yourself a pellet smoker and just push a button and go out there and do it. Like, <laughs> well, even with pellet smoking, I'll tell you what, if anybody's interested in barbecue, turn off your computers and just call a friend that you know that's interested in barbecue and ask them the questions and let them show you the ropes, whether they make awful barbecue or good barbecue, yeah. they're going to point you in a direction and you're still going to learn. And it's so, it's so much better to just talk to people and have a community of people that are interested in it than to stick online because we live in this victorious secret fantasy of the perfect tomahawk steak and the perfect <laughs> barbecue slice where, you know, if somebody doesn't rest it just enough and slice it just enough or squeeze the steak enough, they're getting ripped apart online. And that's, that's not real barbecue. No. So, you know, stay offline and talk to real people. Yeah. Cause it, there's a big difference, and I'm sure you see this. There's a big difference between cooking food for photography and cooking food for people. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. 100, 100%. And that's that's a constant struggle. Um, it's, it's hard as a creator that does make stuff for social media because I have to eat this stuff too. So, like, if I cook a perfect steak and I'm slicing through it, it might not look as bright red Um it might have a little bit of a gray band and I might get ripped up by people in the community, <laughs> but like, I'm telling you it's in real life. It's delicious. Um, and it's tough. There's a lot of barbecue tricks that you have to do, um, for food photography and especially making videos. Oh, dude, hundred percent. And it, it, I think a lot of folks forget that I guess it's changed a lot now because of, because of social media and because the budgets aren't there for a lot of folks that are doing these things. But prior to social media, whenever you saw, even now, whenever you see commercials uh, with food, half the time, it's not even fucking food that they're shooting in those commercials. Like yep. I was on a, on a pizza ad where they literally screw gun the pizza down to the table and then <laughs> loaded the cheese with all sorts of glues and all sorts of like substances to make that cheese super stringy. And then put the toppings over the the fucking the screwed down crust, and then we s spent hours just pulling like this fake cheese to get that <laughs> shot. I mean, that is what we grew up understanding food is. That is what through all the fast food ads, through the the fucking ice cream commercials where it's Crisco instead of ice cream on the cones, yep. like and so. I guess the interesting thing now with social media is that folks don't know how to do that or can't afford to do that kind of thing to make it perfect. And so they're at least cooking food, photographing <laughs> food, but it's, you're still cheating the system. You're still like undercooking that cut of meat or you're still, you know, um, you know, have, cooking two different variations of stuff in order to get the photographs. Cause at the end of the day, it's about the photographs and not necessarily yeah. about the food. Yeah. It's especially with like the cookbook in particular, basically any steak that I cook, I have to undercook cause it's going to sit there and die on the cutting board. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, so it, it's gotta, it's gotta look good. And I always now because I have to eat it, you know, I'm not using weird chemicals. I'll usually just have a little bowl of beef fat that's melted that if I have to paint it on a piece of steak, I'm not going to cry. It's going to taste delicious when I actually have to eat it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's the production of, of 
once again, here's the, here's the theme. The the world that that we all look at and get depressed about because we're not living that world at that moment that we're looking at it is false. Like when we yeah. look at these things on Instagram, they're false. And I'm not saying that the people that are making stuff, I'm not saying that the folks that are doing this are false folks. It's just to create that perfect fucking image. It's fake. And so if you go to someone's house for a barbecue and they they lay out a spread and it doesn't look like it does on Instagram, go eat it. Eat it and enjoy <laughs> it and 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 taste it and be like, holy shit. And, and the focus is on the food. It's not on the presentation of the food. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a huge thing. It really is. And it's something that we I feel like we're constantly combating on this show is the illusion, the illusion of what it's like to be uh, a famous chef, the illusion of what it's like to be a rock star, the illusion of what it's like to be a filmmaker or an actor. It's all a fucking illusion. And most of the time people are taking these photos of plates or these taking these these photos of what they're doing and behind the camera they're in sweatpants and a shirt that they haven't changed out of in four days. <laughs> <laughs> so let's be real about it, you know? I mean? Oh yeah. Dude, uh, my, my photo studio, and I use that term very lightly, is in my garage. I mean, the, the stuff that you see right around is, you know, a bunch of cables and toolboxes. So, like, it's yeah. definitely, you know, it's just a place where I get good lighting. <laughs> but you were talking earlier about imposter syndrome. And I get, yeah. I get that, dude. I totally get that. I mean, everybody feels a sense of imposter syndrome because there are these narratives that are out there that explain what the professional has done to get there. And most of the time, these narrative stories are just crafted. They're PR stories like uh, this so-and-so person uh, did uh, an amazing amount of training and blah, 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 and all this kind of shit that they put out there to sell books or they put out there to get you to tune in. And so then we just absorb all of this, this press. And then when we decide that we want to live this fantasy that we've created for ourselves by reading this shit and seeing these posts, we go, oh, well, fuck, I'm not... I didn't do that, and and I don't think I'm that good because of that. And then when you meet these people in real life, and believe me, I've worked with enough rock stars, I've worked with enough folks, when you meet them in real life, they're regular folks with the same sort of insecurities that you have, same imposter syndrome that you have, and they sort of sit there and they go, well, yeah, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's that's comforting to know. <laughs> yeah, man. Fuck yeah. And so then once we get over that, once you get over the uh, the need to sort of appease the audience that you've set in your head, the expectations that you've uh, set in your head, then you can actually just fucking enjoy it. And more importantly, you can decide whether or not you actually enjoy it or if you were hunting for that expectation. Because if you're yeah. hu hunting for that expectation, you're going to be fucking disappointed pretty quick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Um, anyway, I don't know. I, I, got, I got on a rant. Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were talking about uh, we were talking about fake food and what people see versus just getting out there and, and trying it. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. So when, when, when you hung out with folks, what was what was the... You, it must have been like a flavor explosion for you. It must have been like, how, how was it tasting everybody's food? Was it fun? It was because everybody cooks so differently. Um, the people that were there were, were a wide variety of, you know, home cooks, home chefs. Um, 
just standard barbecue, um, you know, traditional barbecue. And then there's just, you know, more of the Southwest like myself. So it was, it was neat to just see this like giant feast come out and every dish just be very different and kind of, you know, from different backgrounds. So I think that for me was just really neat to see that there's so many people out there that cook so well and, and do what I do and have their own voice. Yeah. That's so cool, man. Really cool. Very jealous. What a great experience. <laughs> Very jealous of that. Um, uh, Brad, this has been, this has been awesome, dude. Um, Thanks. what I would like to do two things. One, I think we should wrap this up. And then I also want to do like another little segment with you if you're down. Um, sure. But, uh, to wrap up all this thing, this stuff, I mean, we've been talking about barbecue, uh, before I ask you the final question, where can people go to check out your recipes and your stuff? Chilies and smoke.com and chilies is C H I L E S. Um, and I'm very active on Instagram and Facebook as well. Uh, you, if you're on either one, you'll see the same content. Um, so Come by, drop a line, say hi, ask any questions. I, I love helping. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. And I guess the final the final question that I would ask you would be if um if someone was getting if someone wanted to uh someone just picks up a Weber, right? So someone just gets themselves like a, a small little Weber and they want to do a relatively simple barbecue this weekend, but something more than just your steak and potatoes kind of game. Uh, Mm -hmm. what would you suggest they cook? I'd probably say to get something like a tri-tip and, and reverse sear it. And I don't mean the pellet grill way. I mean, just getting the, getting the charcoal set up in a two zone way where you got all the coals on one side, you got nothing on the other. Um, you put your meat on the side where there's no coals, that way you're getting some just kind of nice smoke, almost like it's baking in a, in a smoky oven. And right before it gets to that final temperature of, of whatever you like, I like mine medium rare, about 135. Um, so right before it gets there, grab it and throw it directly over the coals and sear that bad boy off. And that way it, it's just beautifully pink in the middle. Um, you get that crispy char in the outside and to be honest, it's kind of low maintenance. You, you just let it hang out in that in that grill for 45 minutes or so before you have to sear it. So you get a little bit both experience of sitting back and relaxing and then having to be out there and, and manually uh, manage it too. And I think doing cooks like that's probably the most fun. You do the same thing with chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep it off on the side until it's almost done and crisp it up at the end. Um, I love that two zone cooking method with, with any grills. I think a lot of people are uh, intimidated, especially no new folks are intimidated with uh, understanding that method. And I, I, yeah. I, and I try to explain to them, it's like, you have to stop being afraid of fire. You have to stop being afraid of hot coals. You have to stop being afraid of those things. You have to spend a little time with them and then understand that obviously common sense says the closer you are to a coal, the hotter the coal is going to be. And so what you're trying to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're trying to do is create a chamber that you can control the heat. And so if you're building a small stack or dependent upon the size of stack of coals that you put on the two zone side, will will change how hot it gets inside that grill. Um, yeah. You're just trying to figure out how to get the temperature 
on the small on the low cook side to be where where are you generally running that at? Is it like two two fifty or something like that? It, to be honest with you, I usually run it about 300 in those because uh, I, I find it pretty difficult to maintain a lower temperature when you're doing the two-zone cooking for shorter cooks. Yeah. Um, and also, I think it's intimidating for a lot of newer um, or, or lesser experienced people in grilling to attempt to hit that perfect 250. I, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't matter if it's 250 or 325, it's still going to work. That's the cool part. So it, when you set up a two zone in your grill where you've got hot coals on one side and nothing on the other, what you're doing is basically using an oven on one side where it's baking it slow and yep. a broiler on the other, if you can think about it that way. Yep. So you've got the, when you have it not over the heat, it's sitting there and it's going to bake around 300 degrees. And then when it's over the heat, it's broiling. That's when you're searing it. So if you can think of it the same way as an oven, all of a sudden your eyes open up. You're like, dang, I bake chicken wings. I bake ribs. I can do this. Um, you got to go out there and just burn some meat. <laughs> because yeah. That's how you learn. <laughs> yeah, man. hundred percent. And when you're searing it at that point, you're really searing it for flavor and texture more than anything else. You're not searing it to yep. cook it. So if you get that in your yep. head where you're like, I just sear it just enough to get that bark and that texture that I want to taste and bite through, then that's what I'm doing here. Yeah. And everybody likes it different. So I think the the concept of just the process is so much more important they getting these exact temperatures and this exact timing. It's all about just getting out there and doing it. All right, there it is. Great episode. Uh, I don't know if it's going to show or not, but for some reason I had a major crash right at the end there. So if it seems a little bit awkward, we just jump right back into it. Maybe I'll cut it so that you won't even notice. And then you guys will be like, Mike, we don't even know what you're talking about. Why are you wasting time talking about it? Um, I had a lot of fun talking to Brad. Cool dude. Uh, a guy that I definitely want to eat with. You know, someone that I want to hang out and, and, and see and learn his recipe building. Um, just ignore the noises in the background. There's like a little mouse back here kicking around. What are you digging up? Oh my God. Um, so yeah, no, I really enjoyed hanging out with him. And uh, hopefully, Brad, if you're listening, you come out to Los Angeles, we'll go get tacos and hang out, man. I'm, I'm totally down. Um, so yeah, man, I hope you guys really appreciate what we're trying to say on the show today, which is human interaction. And I, I can't believe I have to say that. There's so many people that are afraid to have human interaction. How often do you... Uh, afraid to pick up the phone to call somebody? How often are you worried about uh, not being able to edit your your text or your message before you send it, right? Human interaction means a lot. It means a lot to you. It means a lot to the other person. And once you can sort of get over that social anxiety, which all of us have right now, and it seems to be so fucking rampant, right? Because of COVID, everything just seems to be Ah, very, very, very small. The point of view is very, very short. You know, and we're, we're looking at stuff through all of these convenient little apps, searching for food, searching for ideas, reading articles that are all obviously plants and advertisement plants. 
you know, and we're just, we're trying to build our, an exciting life for ourselves through our fucking phones. And you forget, it's always by accident with me, where like I stumble into a situation and I'm in something that I didn't plan and I didn't overthink. And uh, it ends up being a fun fucking time. And you go, right, this is what it was supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to feel. It's spontaneous and fun and exciting. And I'm fighting with that all the time, right? I'm I'm right there with you guys. I'm not shitting on you. I just want to make sure that that I don't come off as condescending to you guys because I'm right there with you. You know, I don't know at what point I was hunting. I'd spend more time hunting on my phone for a place to go instead of just going to that fucking place. You know, I don't know what it's like. What am I looking at? I'm looking at Instagram photographs of it. Photos of, of fake food placed on plates, right? In the most perfect lighting situation possible. One of probably a thousand snaps that people filtered through and then add filters to and then shifted and changed and rotated and went through this entire process. I mean, everybody on the planet right now is a fucking Photoshop expert because of our phone and devices. And so we're literally erasing out all of the interesting stuff out of our lives with this shit. That's what we're doing. And so I just want to remind you that the fun is in the unfiltered. That's where the fun is. If you're desperate to find your own style, if you're desperate to find a voice, it's in the unfiltered stuff that you experience. That's where you're going to find the originality. Hope you guys find that. I hope you guys find that interesting. And speaking of which, let me pull this up real quick. I don't know when this episode is going to come out, probably much later, so this may not be as relevant right now. But I just saw, so I saw a clickbait fucking article uh, on a quote from Francis Ford Coppola. So this is the clickbait article. Uh, Article, uh, basically a picture. There used to be studio films. Now there are Marvel movies, dot, dot, dot. Whenever you see that dot, 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 that means there's a whole lot of other shit that they've decided to edit out. One prototype movie that is made over and over and over and over again to look different, right? So you look at that and you go, okay, and this person put this on graphics of Marvel. So it's another older filmmaker shitting on Marvel. So the clickbait there is get you heated. Like, what is this old man? What does he know about all these fucking Marvel movies that I fucking love so much? Fuck this guy, right? Well, go read the full article. So let me read you what he was actually saying. Even studio films that Coppola considered, this is from GQ, by the way. Even studio films that Coppola considers good are somewhat similar. The director maintained the talented people, quote, the talented people, you could take Dune, made by Denis Villeneuve, an extremely talented, gifted artist, and you could take No Time to Die, directed by Carrie Fukunaga, extremely gifted, talented, beautiful artists, and you could take both those movies and you and I could go and pull the same sequence out of both of them and put them together, the same sequence where the cars all crash into each other. Coppola added, they all have that stuff in it and they almost have, and they almost have to have it if they're going to justify their budget and that's what the good films are doing. That's what the talented filmmakers are doing. Um, 
He also says in his original comments from 2019, uh, Coppola took aim at the lack of risk that exists in Hollywood film production these days. Marty Scorsese says that Marvel picture is not cinema. He's right, because we expect to learn something from cinema. We expect to gain some enlightenment, some knowledge, some inspiration. The director says, arguably, I don't know that anyone gets anything out of seeing the same movie over and over and over again, which is the Marvel movie formula. That thing has no risk to it. So I just wanted to read that on here because I, I know how you work. You guys see a graphic. You don't click on a link. You don't even look for resources on where that comes from. And you just go, Coppola hates fucking Marvel movies. Or Scorsese doesn't like young young people films, right? That's not the case. What these guys are saying, and it's very true, is that in order to get enough money to make something at a certain scale, there's a formula that you must follow. A formula that is in place by folks that want to make lots of money. And that formula follows a specific structure, an emotional structure, that if you fit into that, you're not guaranteed success, but you're also not making it hard to find success. Do you know what I'm saying? And so then you get a lot of the same movies. They're not wrong, man. And this isn't new. This look back at, at uh, you know, Die Hard, right? The Die Hard formula. That movie comes out, changes the game, right? Really hadn't blown up to the extent, that formula hadn't blown up to the extent yet, it was kind of like a, a new take on the film noir, it was like a new take on like uh, man versus man. It was a, this interesting thing that happened, right? So then you get Die Hard. How many movies after that fit into the Die Hard format? Think about it. You've got Cliffhanger. You've got the one with Jean-Claude Van Damme. What was that one? Sudden Death, where he was at the hockey rink, right? I just watched... Uh, Air Force One the other day. Get off my plane. Another one. That one's totally diehard on an airplane. Right? There were so many diehard pieces that came after that because folks were chasing the cash. And with Hollywood, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. It's a risk, risk, risk business. A lot of money is needed. A lot of energy, a lot of time is needed to go into these things. And so when you're doing stuff on such a giant scale, and you're spending like, you know, 250, you know, like 250 million on something. You, you you need to make that back. You need to have how many people at like 15 bucks a pop watch that movie, enjoy that movie to make that investment back. Formula. So I get it. I think if, if I had to interpret interpret what Scorsese and what Coppola are saying is that the hunt for the big money, the hunt for the billions, the two billion, the three billion take or whatever it's been lately, uh, means that you have to follow this formula. And there is no room for anything else because everybody's hunting for that specific formula. There are outliers, right? There are like the A24s out there. There are the, the Blumhouses out there, but they have their own specific formulas and they go further in the other direction where it's like, I don't make a movie with a first time directed more than 2 million or we never go above 5 million to make our movies. You have to work within the system. What we've lost is like the mid ground, 
right? The $30 million, the $60 million, like in the, in the middle, the stuff that's a bit more manageable. And in that price point, you don't have to appeal to everybody because you don't have to have as many people in the seats. I get what they're saying, you know? And I just wanted to point that stuff out because it's something to think about. This system that we currently have is averse to risks. They're adverse to, to risky filmmaking. There's a reason why Panos, Cosmatos, isn't working on, on Marvel movies. You know what I mean? There's a reason why these great directors that we love, these indie directors that are sort of caught in the under $10 million range, uh, they, they can't graduate out of it. And when they do graduate out of it, they have to then sort of like follow the rules, start writing things the way an audience can easily digest it. And then what's that mean about us, right? And it makes sense that this is the world that we're in right now because of all the depression that exists due to COVID, due to everything else. We're all just sort of plugging ourselves in, hitting that dopamine hit. Get me out of the reality of this world. I'm trapped in this same fucking place. I need to go somewhere. I don't want to think about things. I get it. But as we, go, we get out of it, and as the world opens up again, we need to start testing ourselves a little bit, narratively, technique-wise, story-wise. And if we're going to be opening the world, which I fully embrace, to all sorts of different demos and all sorts of demographics, I want to hear their real stories. I want to I know what it's like to go have a meal with these people. I want to live in their family lives. I want to understand how they came up. Yes, I want to understand their struggles, but I also want to understand their triumphs. And I want to know why they're successful, why they're happy, why they're not. And a lot of that means risk-taking. And so at the end of the day, I get what they're saying. It's about time we started to break that formula a little bit. It's about time we started to change our perspective. And it really comes down to us as a culture right now, because everybody's hunting. Everybody wants to be a fucking millionaire, right? Everybody wants to be a billionaire now. Everybody's looking for the fast cash, the NFTs out there, the Bitcoins, all that shit. Folks that are coming into me and telling me that I need to do this stuff that literally don't create anything. And they're just looking for the a fast way. If I spend $500, if I spend $50 on this, then maybe I can sell this thing for, tw for 20 grand. I, I heard this story about this guy that spent $10 on a fucking GIF and then he sold it off and he made $30,000. I want to do that. And so people get so passionate about chasing that, that free thing, that free income, that, that scam, right? I know I, scam is probably the wrong word because it's not proven to be a scam. But yeah, like that mentality of the hunt, the hunger for the big bucks, you know? That's where we are. That's our culture right now. And does that hunger, do we create anything when we do that? Right? And what are we creating? I, 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 gotta, sell, I, I gotta sell this NFT the same way that Beeble sold this NFT. So I have to make my stuff to look exactly like his shit. Dude, wake up. Beeble sold his shit for that price because he's fucking Beeble. He already has the audience. He already has the followers. People love his shit. He sold it for that price because that's who he is. 
wake up, man. I don't know. I got on a fucking really interesting tangent. And you know what? To be fair, I've been thinking about this right now for a long time. Um, I've been thinking about getting someone on the show to talk about the NFT stuff because I have a lot of close friends that are big into it right now and they're chasing it and they keep telling me that I got to get into it. And I'll be 100% honest with you. Uh, the cynical side of me is sitting here going, this feels like a fucking scam. Some portion of this doesn't feel right. And you know what? I don't think it's the process of what NFTs want to be. I think it's the circulating folks that are around NFTs that are looking to get rich quick. That's weird to me. So before I pass too much judgment on it, I'm going to get someone on the show. Would you guys like me to do that? Send me a message on Instagram. And if you guys have suggestions of who I should get on the show to talk about NFTs, let me know. Because this is something that I, I swear to Christ, I was sitting around yesterday and it was like text, 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 people just writing to me. And I'm like, what was there a fucking like clickbait article that's been circulating today? Why are we all talking about this right now? And I know it's a topic that's been heavy, but why are the people close to me sending me stuff about this right now? And I know that they're doing it because they want to see me succeed and they see this as a, as a path for success, but I'm cautious about it. So let me know what you think. Let me know what you think. Maybe you are an NFT fucking guru out there. Send me some notes on Instagram at Mike Petchy. All right. That's it, man. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Lots more on the way. Stick around. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday. <laughs>